Well, if you were hoping in 2017 to escape the media's constant bombardment of political news, you've had a long week. You've had a long week. President Obama this week giving his farewell speech, a a victory lap of sorts, rehearsing a lot of his past accomplishments and warning of future political polarization. And, of course, nearly every media news outlet has been consumed with what they're calling confirmapalooza. Right, this is the confirmation hearing surrounding Jeff Sessions and, and Rex Tillerson. That's been all over the news. And then, of course, then there's the unsubstantiated dossier of dirt that apparently Putin and the Russians purportedly have, along with some MI6 agent, on uh, President-elect Trump. And we could keep going with all the political theater that continues into 2017. But there was one story that particularly caught my attention this week. I was listening to NPR, and it was a story about the six clergy that are going to be praying and reading during the inauguration this upcoming Friday. There's a Catholic archbishop, there's a rabbi, and there's Reverend Graham. And it sounds at that point like there's a bad joke to follow. But that's not what it was. It wasn't a joke. They were talking about a figure that's actually grabbed the most attention of this diverse group of clergy. And that's the sort of Florida mega pastor, televangelist, Paula White. She's not only the first female pastor ever to pray or participate in inauguration. She's also Trump's personal spiritual advisor, the one to whom he credits his quote-unquote conversion. And thus, she's actually the leader of Trump's evangelical council, as he calls it. And yet, as I was listening to NPR, you could hear the reporter. He was kind of struggling with the language, the right vocabulary, because he wanted to call this woman, Paula White, a Christian and a Protestant, even an evangelical, for, of course, she leads his evangelical council. And yet, at the same time, she denies the Trinity according to the Nicene Creed. She preaches that illness is a curse from God for lack of faith. And she promises financial blessing for following Jesus. And thus, the the NPR commentator was, was struggling to know how to reconcile this with what it means to be a disciple, with what it means to be a follower of Christ. Right? Is that what disciples believe? Is that what disciples teach? What even is a disciple? Well, it's these kind of questions that we want to be thinking about this morning from our text in Galatians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open with me, Galatians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided in the seat back before you. I think you can find Galatians 4 on page 974. Page 974. And as you turn, I just want to thank John Muller in particular for preaching the last two weeks while I was gone. You know, one of the great things about a senior pastor is you get to preach the word every week. That's wonderful. Every now and then it's good to take a break. And it was just wonderful to be back last Sunday but to be able to sit right there in the pew and to be blessed by another bringing God's word. That's just a wonderful reminder to us, to me, that we do not gather around personalities. We gather around the proclamation of the word. And it was great to have John's service. Brother, thank you for doing that so well from James. Um, But we're going to be back in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 20. And we've been away for a number of weeks and recognize that. So to try to help bring us up to speed, the Apostle Paul has traveled through Galatia, preaching the gospel, planting churches. And yet sometime later, after he's left, men from Jerusalem have come. They've infiltrated the church. And they're arguing that in order to be a true disciple of Jesus, 
you actually need to become a Jew first. That was their argument. What these teachers were advocating to these young Gentile Christians is that they needed to be circumcised and keep the requirements of the Mosaic law. Paul's gospel was a defective gospel. Paul had left all these commands out. And in their minds, therefore, Moses had to complete what Jesus had left incomplete. And so Paul writes the letter to the Galatian churches. And we've said his basic argument, the sum of the book is this. The good news of the gospel is not what God requires of us, but it's what Christ has accomplished for us. That's the argument of Galatians. The good news of the gospel is not what God requires of us. It's what Christ has accomplished for us. And the thesis of the book we said is right there in chapter 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified, right? Not declared righteous before God by works of the law, circumcision, what have you, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And everything he's written after that, sort of 3.1 down through 4.11, really is the theological heart of the book supporting that claim in Genesis, rather in Galatians 2.16. Paul's saying, listen, you experienced this salvation of justification by faith. He says that in 3.1 to 5. He says, listen, Abraham believed this, 3.6 through 9. The law and the prophets, they teach this as well, 3.10 to 14. The Mosaic law reinforces this. Verses 10 to 14 of chapter 3, or rather 15 to 22 of chapter 3. And then we saw right into Christmas how Christ's life and death and resurrection accomplished this great gospel of justification by faith alone. 323 through 47. So now that all those who were slaves to sin, not natural born sons of God, through Jesus can be adopted as sons. And that's where we left off back on Christmas Day. So what does it look like then to embrace this gospel truth that Paul has presented? What is a disciple? Let's begin reading Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Paul writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, referring to the false teachers, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. 
All right. One of the things that's immediately striking about this text is how personal, how strikingly personal the passage is. We feel Paul, the pastor, he's, he's really breathing his pastoral heart. It's coming out through his very words here. And that's because Paul's shifting from some of the theological foundations that sort of undergirded his argument. And he's now starting to apply those principles to their pastoral applications, to the gospel and in their lives. And we know that in part because of verse 12. Verse 12, we read, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. That's the first imperative that we've seen in the whole book, right? We're four and a half chapters into the book, and that is the very first imperative Paul has given, become as I am, or become like me, for I became like you. And we're going to find more imperatives to follow through the end of chapter four and five and six. So 412 really marks a turn in the letter. It's a turn in the letter. It's the point in which Paul's theological exposition that started back in 3.1 through 4.11, it's going to turn and he's going to start to apply again all the things that he has shared with them, which is always a good and necessary reminder to us that in Christianity and with Jesus, imperatives always follow the indicative imperatives always follow the indicative and not the other way around. The good news of Jesus Christ is never, yeah, go get your life in order. And once you've largely done that, come back and maybe God will accept you. That's not the message of Christianity at all. That's the message of religion, but not Jesus. Christianity simply says, as Galatians has been arguing, Paul's been arguing, Christianity is, yeah, God's already done everything for you in Christ. It's not what God requires of us. It's what Christ has already accomplished for us. And now that that is done, that work is accomplished, you can go and do likewise. And that's exactly what marks Christianity off from every other major world religion, any other self-help gospel. And it's why you'll note as we get to those sermon cards, which Stephen was so kind not to call me out. You don't have a sermon card and that's my fault. That's no other one's fault on staff. It's my fault. It's been a little slow in coming. And if you remember the first set of sermons from Galatians, it was the gospel is justification, promise, adoption. Well, as we're turning here through chapter 12, through verse uh, 4, 12 and on, it's going to be the gospel produces disciples. It produces freedom, fruit, affection for one another, perseverance. Because we're transitioning from the essence of the gospel at the heart of the letter to the effects of the gospel in their lives. And that's what's happening in the verses that we have this morning. All the personal, all the parental language, all the imperatives, the contrast of, of what they used to be to what they now believe, of Paul's relationship with them and now the strained relationship of their relationship with the false teachers, all that's... Paul's way of trying to underscore, hey, remember what you believed. Remember what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So what's a true disciple? You can summarize 4, 8 through 20 like this. Disciples, they're simply this. Disciples are born of God through the preaching of Christ as they follow the pattern of Christ in others. You want a sum of our text. I think that's it. Disciples are born of God through the preaching of Christ as they follow the pattern of Christ in others. All right, and that sense is just going to serve as our basic outline this morning. All right, so the first thing I think Paul helps us to see is that disciples, they're born of God. Disciples are born of God. We see this in verses 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11. Paul reminds them 
in these verses of their own experience of salvation. He recalls in verse 11 when they did not know God, formerly they didn't know God. And often when that Bible uses that word know, it's not referring simply to sort of cognitive understanding. The Bible uses that word to refer to relationship. Often very intimate relationships, as in Adam knew Eve. Right? There's an intimacy there. There's a knowledge there that is unique. And the point is, even right here, formally, he's saying when you did not know God, he's not saying they didn't know anything about God, but they didn't know him in a saving relational way. Right, Paul's helping us see the Galatians weren't naturally in relationship with God, which may strike you as a bit odd because I think some of us will just assume naturally, of course, we're in a good relationship with God. Right? We think our relationship with him is copacetic. It's, it's on good terms. Maybe, maybe even like I'm a fave in his Facebook account. I don't know what you think about your relationship with God, but that can be an assumption that we have. And yet, according to the Bible, what Paul's helping us to see is that none of us are born into that friendly relationship with God. Our accounts, if you will, all of them flagged from birth. And that's not true merely of irreligious people, but also very religious people. These Galatians, as we've seen, are religious people. Jesus even says to the Pharisees in John eight nineteen, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father as well. And yet here we are reading these Galatians, religious people as well, enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. We've seen how slavery is a recurring theme here in Galatians because biblically, as Paul's been at pains to show and as the Old Testament reveals to us we're all born slaves. We may claim to be free, but in fact, in our own hearts, they are fettered. They are chained. And I think one of the arenas in which we can see this most poignantly is in that arena of our own sexual lives. And if you think of the sexual revolution, you know, build as sort of a, a liberation from our very sort of priggish and pure sort of ways of the past. And then sexuality has become the hallmark of personal freedom, right? That I can do what I want with whom I want, when I want, and no one can tell me that I can do, I can't do otherwise. And yet 40 plus years later, far from deepening our appreciation of sex or our satisfaction in it, the sexual revolution has instead resulted in sex without meaning, sex without context, sex without consequences, sex without any human connection. And so we have, what do we have? We have a whole generation who like addicts are enslaved. And now to entice them, they need something more forbidden, something more provocative, something more perverse, something more deviant, something more violent in order to excite. You know, it was German poet Goethe who once said, none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. You know, I can't think sometimes of a better description of us. The point is, all of us, we're slaves to our lusts, slaves to our passions, slaves to to power, to prestige, to success, whatever it might be. But the hope of Christianity that Paul's been laying out is that we actually can be delivered from such slavery, that we can be rescued. And we see a beautiful picture of that in verses 8 and 9, right? But now, 
We see that again. You know that verse in Ephesians where Paul turns, but now, we see it right here, but now, those formerly enslaved, he says, know God. Now that you have come to know God. But of course, how did that happen? How did they come to know God? Was it through sort of dispassionate, disciplined study and research? Did they get some National Geo expose or some wiki article that taught them about God? No, Paul catches himself. He says, you have come to know God. Or, or rather, he says, be known by God. Notice what, notice what Paul does. It's, it's not that they've come into this knowledge of God independently. They know God first because they've been known by God. Paul's emphasis is not here on their decision, but it's on God's prior selection. This knowledge implies choice. It implies what the Bible refers to as election that we read from 1 Thessalonians 1. Just as God knew Abraham by choosing him to be the father of many nations in Genesis 17. Just as God knew Israel only and chose her out of all the peoples of the earth, Amos 3.2. Just as God knew Jeremiah individually, he says, before I formed you, I knew you and chose you and consecrated you and appointed you to be a prophet. Just as Paul says in Romans 8, that those whom God foreknew, he predestined. You know, it was this truth that was captured so well in the Southern Baptist Convention's first statement of faith in 1845. Election is God's eternal choice of some persons under everlasting life, not because of foreseen merit in them, but of his mere mercy in Christ, in consequence of which choice. Right, the result of that choice of God is that they are called, justified, and glorified. Right? God's choice being the decisive factor. First John 4.10, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul's point is that we can no more find God than a dead man can dig himself out of his grave. Right? We're hopeless unless God first breathes new life into us and makes himself known to us. And friends, that truth, which the Galatians should have understood, that should promote great humility in our own hearts. I mean, if you're a Christian this morning, you can't boast in it. You can't take any pride in it. It's not that you are wiser or smarter or better than some other benighted chap. No, God made himself known to you. He revealed himself to you. It's because he sovereignly and lovingly did that, that you know him. Right, but it doesn't just promote humility. It promotes awe and intimacy. You know, maybe you can remember a time when, when you had a crush on someone. You can think back to a time when you had a crush on someone. And, and maybe you would place yourself in just such a spot that you might see them. And you might get to observe them, admire them. Maybe you'd go home and you'd open up your yearbook and look at old pictures, you know, because there was no Facebook then. And so that's how you looked at pictures of someone that was in your, in your, uh, your school class. Maybe you'd go to their games and you'd watch their concerts, perhaps, and just wonder if maybe perhaps someday they might take notice of you. But you knew you didn't have a shot. You didn't have a prayer in the world. 
Right? You were sort of the reject. You weren't too smart. You weren't too handsome or pretty. You were not especially witty or funny. You didn't have a nice car or fine clothes. You couldn't even resort to the, at least I have good character. Right? You had nothing that commended you to that person. And yet one day, as you're staring, you catch their eye and they notice you. And then they move towards you. And your heart skips a beat. And then they speak to you. And your head darts to the right and left thinking, well, they're not speaking to me. And then you realize their mouth sweetly forms your name. And you hear their voice. And that voice comes with a smile. And that smile is followed with laughter. And that's followed by them taking seat next to you. And you realize, oh my world, the impossible has happened. They actually just took notice of me. Well, friends, realize that is nothing that pales in comparison to what it's like to be known by God. To be known by God. To have this sovereign Lord of the universe set his affections personally upon you. Awe and intimacy to know God in that way. But it's the ground of our assurance. It's the ground of our insurance because at the end of the day, our assurance, our confidence that Christ will keep us to the end, that's not anchored in how firm our hearts are fixed upon God, right? Our hearts waver, they grow cold, but it's rather in how unshakably firm his heart is toward us. That's the confidence of our assurance that these very doctrines breed in us. I love what J.I. Packer wrote years ago in his wonderful book, Knowing God. He says there is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me, knows me in love, watches over me for my good. There's tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me or quench his determination to bless me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that though he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see, and that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself, there is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die that he might know me. Friends, if you want to keep reading, you can. Knowing God. This is an old copy. I don't know what the new covers look like, but it's in the, it's beyond that bookstall. If you want to go out, I didn't know I was going to be plugging this. I don't know how many copies we have, but it's a couple bucks. It's a steal. Don't like literally steal it, but it's a steal for a price. Use it. It'll be well worth your soul. I'd encourage you to keep reading. And thanks again to Ryan and to Sam and to EJ and to Corey who made the the bookshelves themselves. Thank you for all for making that resource possible for us. All right. Despite all these things, despite the fact that God knows them in that way, we still read that in spite of these blessings, they're turning back, verse 9. They're turning back again to their former slavery, right? Crazy that after all that, they turn back, right? Like the high schooler who says, you know what, here are, my, here are my car keys, here's my iPhone, I really liked my 7.30 bedtime, I want to go back to the curfew, and can I have my onesie and blankie? And it's like, 
No, no, no teenager does that. They want the freedoms of adulthood. They don't want the constraints of childhood. And yet that's what they're walking back into. It defies explanation. And notice how they're doing it. It's actually not by going back to the temple of Zeus or Apollo, verse 10. It's by observing days and months and seasons and years. He's talking about the Jewish calendar. Paul's equating their return, really they're turning for the first time to the Mosaic law. He's equating that turn to the Mosaic law with actually reversion to paganism. Because if that law can save, then Christ, as he said back in 221, died for nothing. He died for nothing. It's why he says in verse 11, I fear I may have labored over you in vain. And one of you remarked to me, you know, that's one thing I hope you never say about me. I'd, I'd actually never thought of that, but I'm like, well, I hope I don't have to say it about you either. How are you doing? You know? <laughs> no, you just, that's not what you want your pastor to say about you. I hope I haven't labored over you in vain. But that's the seriousness with which Paul takes their own, what looks like apparent apostasy here. And so Paul is concerned for them. And in verses 12 to 20, he's going to beg them to remember their conversion and to remember the relationship he had with them and the gospel that he preached to them. So how was it that they came to be known by God, born of God? He says it was through the preaching of Christ. That's the second thing we learn about being a disciple, right? Disciples, right, they're born of God, but secondly, born of God through the preaching of Christ, through the preaching of Christ. That's what he highlights in verses 13 and 14. You know it's because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me. When he preached the gospel, they received him as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Right, notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, Listen, I, when I came to you, I encouraged you to go back and to cherish what was all a part of the practice of your local temples. He says they had to abandon their former ways, abandon their religion, and receive the preached gospel about Jesus Christ, which is just a reminder to us when we're talking to folks who aren't Christians, whether they're Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or Mormons or Catholics or spiritualists, we're not saying discover the best in your spiritual tradition. That's what God would have for you. No, Paul's saying leave it all. As I, Paul, left it all. As you once left it all. You leave it all. You need to be converted. You need to be saved out of that and know the living and true God. As Sam read to us from 1 Thessalonians 1.9 earlier. They needed to be delivered from their slavery. So just if you've come this morning and you wouldn't identify yourself in any way as a Christian. Maybe a friend brought you or you stumbled in for some reason curious about what Christians believe or teach or what they do and behind these closed doors. Right, if, you, if that's you... Just the good news of the gospel, you've got to know, is not that God demands your best. That's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is Christ has given his best, and that's what you need. That's what you need. That's what we all need, is that anyone can be forgiven. When they look to Christ, the Son of God, who lived as we should have lived and yet every day choose not to live. And that same Son of God died the death that we all deserve for our sin. The one who didn't deserve it died the death we deserve. And so therefore we can look to him 
placing our faith in him and turning from our sin. And we can know that we can be saved, not because God was lonely and needs us, but because he loves us and desires relationship. And so in Christ, you can be saved. You can be delivered from the slavery that you would know in your own hearts. You can be delivered from that by trusting, repenting of your sin and following after Christ. I wonder if you've ever heard that message and responded to it and embraced it. And if you haven't, I wonder why you haven't. I mean, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for a better offer? Are you waiting for a better offer than the only eternal son of God who says in Christ, I will know you personally, intimately, securely, eternally. I mean, what can be a better offer than that? There's no better offer. I pray that you come to know Christ. And what's remarkable is that this was the message Paul preached. And what's crazy is these Galatians believed it. And I say that's crazy because in the Greco-Roman world, the one who is the herald of a message, of a divine message, was supposed to be the embodiment of the divine. Which would mean you'd want to be an impressive character, an impressive figure, strong, handsome, whatever it might be. That's what you would want. And yet tradition holds that, that Paul was actually none of those things. He was a fat little bald man with a big nose. I mean, that's how tradition presents Paul. But not only that, what do we read? He arrived to them with some great bodily affliction or ailment in verse 13. So just imagine this guy's coming, a representative of apparently the one true God, and he's preaching eternal life, and yet he looks like he's on death's door. Why would anyone believe that messenger? Of course, no one should believe that messenger. And yet Paul understood that his sickness wasn't a liability. They began to see that Paul's sickness wasn't a liability, but an opportunity for God to demonstrate his own power in Paul's weakness. And how Paul's temporary sufferings would be the means by which these Galatians would come to everlasting life. And how would they know that? Because God made himself known to them. He did that work in their own hearts. So I think it's just a good word to us, some of us who might feel sort of burdened by constant physical affliction. I hope you don't feel as you suffer that physical affliction that in some way you're sidelined from gospel work. Because when it comes to God's roster, there is no IR, right? There's no injured reserve. There's no one not playing and active. You may not have had plans to do this or to go there, Paul's plans, like we know, they did not include Galatia. In his strategic planning meeting with the whiteboard, Galatia was not on his itinerary. But God put him in Galatia. And when sickness struck, Paul trusted that God's plans were better than his own plans. He prayed, if you know 2 Corinthians, he prayed for lots of things to be removed from him. But when God didn't, he trusted that God, the sovereign one of the universe who loved him and who knows him, that God, well, he probably knows what he's doing. And I need to trust that his plans are better than my own plans. And it included the salvation of these Galatian souls. Friends, it is so often in the midst of our personal adversity that the gospel most advances. Just reflect on that in your own life. And if you find yourself in the midst of such adversity, pray that God would help you see maybe how he can be using this to advance his work. You know, it was about 25 years ago that one of the most famous commercials was, was ever aired. 
Gatorades, be like Mike. Do you remember that commercial? Be like Mike. I want to be like Mike. It had that catchy little tune. Some of you from late 80s, early 90s may even be singing it. And the, it had that tune. And, and if you know the commercial, be like Mike, I want to be like Mike. It had great shots of him with his dunks and his up and unders and the, the shot, right, that sunk the Cavs in the Eastern Conference uh, playoffs, I think back in 89. And of course, as you look at all these great shots of Michael Jordan, they would turn after every one and they would show kids trying to do round the back and kids trying to dunk. And it was just, everyone loved the commercial. It did incredibly well. And Frankly, it did really great for Michael Jordan's own brand name. But who wouldn't want to be like Mike? That was the thing. All of us wanted to be like Mike. To do what he did, we all bought Air Jordans. It became sort of the most iconic shoe. Changed the shoe industry to think Adidas almost got him. You just imagine, we'd be wearing Air Adidas. What a weird thing. All right. But I mean, that that commercial did so well because what did it do? It papped into that, that power of imitation. The power of imitation. And that's part of what Paul's doing in these verses. Disciples are born of God through the preaching of Christ. But then you get this this imitation as they follow the pattern of Christ in others. And that's the third thing I want us to see about disciples. Yes, they're born of God through the preaching of Christ as they follow. Thirdly, as they follow the pattern of Christ in others. Because that's really what's at the heart of the passage. Right there, that imperative in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, right? He's saying, I beg you, become as I am, for I have become as you are. He's saying, become like me, be like me, for I became like you. Well, in what way is Paul calling them to imitate him? I think he's saying, listen, be free of the Mosaic law. Be free from circumcision, from all the attendant circumstances and requirements of the Mosaic law. Be free from those things, For I became like you. Well, in what way did Paul become like them? Free from the law. He was free from the law. He's saying, remember when I lived among you, when I ate among you, when I walked among you, when we laughed and cried together, I entered into your world. Did I require you to be circumcised? No. Did I require slavish obedience to the Sabbath? No. You dug pig? I dig pig. Let's eat pig. It was all good. There were no problems. He's saying, follow my example, be free from the law. It's what Paul writes similarly, follow his example, 1 Thessalonians 1.6. And you became imitators of us. Paul Silas Timothy, he's speaking to the Thessalonian church. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. As you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example, something worth imitating to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Or Paul in 2 Timothy 3.10, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct. You followed my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions. What are elders to be? Examples to the flock. And the church is meant to pattern themselves after their life, 1 Peter 5.3. Here's the thing. The essence of discipleship is imitation. That's what Paul's trying to make clear. He's saying, imitate me. You want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, imitate me. Be as I am. Is Paul teaching we should conform our lives to the pattern of godly Christians? Absolutely. We've just read texts that support the same thing. Now, he's not saying become clones, 
right? We change our vocabulary, change our dress, change our personal preferences so that we all become carbon copies. I recognize Guy was wearing gray pants and a blue jacket, right? That was by accident. We're not trying to be clones of one another up here, right? That'd be all a little creepy, okay? We're not trying to do that. Paul is saying, listen, it is good and right to conform yourselves to the pattern of godly behavior that you see in other Christians. Because Paul knows it's the reflection of Christ in us that's to induce others to become more Christ-like. Because we're all followers. We're all followers. You know, I don't see any women in hoop skirts. I don't see men in tights. Skinny jeans are not tights. I don't see men in tights. Right, we, we don't, we don't, we follow. There are basic trends in fashion and in life. And we look and we see them. We follow them often unthinkingly, uncritically. It's inescapable. The question is, who are you following? Who are you following? And in that following, are you becoming more or less Christ-like? You know, what would your social media feeds, what would all of your faves and likes, what would that say about who you're following? And whether or not that's encouraging you to become more or less Christ-like. I mean, ask yourself, are you an example like Paul? Are you an example worth following? It's imitation, right? There are no Christians who aren't followers. That's the heart of what it means to a disciple. A disciple is one who follows after Christ as we follow one another, as we seek after Christ. I mean, we're all followers. Is your life worth following? I mean, think about Jesus' ministry. He didn't inaugurate his kingdom with a broad mass market media campaign. That's not what he did. He didn't hire product strategists like the gospel was some product he was there to hawk. No, he, what did he do? Jesus gathered with a small group of men. And he got together with them. And over the course of many personal engagements, one-on-one, one-on-three, one-on-twelve, whatever it might be, he poured into them. He invested in them life on life and then said to go and do likewise. And that's it. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did with Timothy. That's what Paul did when he lived with these Galatians. And he's calling them to imitate his example. Because at the heart of Christianity, from Genesis to Revelation, is God's desire not just for you and me to display his character, but for a corporate people together to display his character. The primary pronoun of the Bible, I know you may think it's I, it's not, it's we. It's not me, it's us. Apple sells the I life, the Bible says, no, 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 it's not, it's the we life. That's the Bible. And Paul says he's in anguish, verse 19, until what Christ has formed in you. And you're thinking, yeah, in in me. No, in you, plural. That you is plural. We miss that sometimes in our English translations. He's saying until Christ formed in all of you, in that congregation, his concern is for them corporately. Friends, I don't know what you've thought about Christianity, but Christianity is not for individualists. It's not a religion for individualists. It's for people traveling together down that narrow path that leads to life. Which means if your Christianity doesn't consist of doing deliberate spiritual good to someone so that they can become more like Christ, the Bible doesn't understand your claim to be a Christian. If your Christianity doesn't consist of doing deliberate spiritual good to someone else to help them follow and be more like Christ, the Bible doesn't understand your claim to be a Christian. Friends, invest in one another. Do life together. Disciple one another, which simply means, what is discipling? It's how we help one another get to heaven. 
That's what it is. That's what we're to do together. This is what Paul is doing with them. What does that look like? Listening to God's word. What did Paul do? He preached the word to them. He gave them the word. Jesus gathered his disciples around the word. You do that before work, over a meal, during nap time, in the cars, whatever it might be. You gather around the word. You pray together over that word as we were thinking about in the ABF and the nine with Brian and Joanne Parks earlier this morning. You teach obedience to that word, which would include encouragements and at times admonitions. And then trust God to use that word and your spiritual or rather your personal investment. Trust him to use that to bear spiritual fruit in people. You're like, ah, oh, that sounds great. I don't really know how to do that. No one's ever done that with me. I feel inadequate. Hey, listen, I'll plug the book stall again. Great little book, Discipling. Right, just go ahead and read. Very simple, practical book. How do I help other people follow Jesus? This will help you to do that. And I think it's like $3 on the bookstall. Nice hardback. Three bucks. And you can get it and you can read it. It will be worth your while. You can read it with someone else. And you together can be like, okay, how are we, we going to help one another get to heaven? Let's read the book. Let's talk. Let's pray the Bible. Study the Bible. Let's, let's do this together. Let's figure it out. I'd encourage you to do that. Listen, you don't learn how to ride a bike by watching videos. You get on the bike. And it's a little wobbly at first. That's all right. You get on the bike. You might take a tumble. Okay. You get on the bike. You ride the bike. Just get into God's word. Use the book. Study with one another. Seek to become like Jesus together. I think, Brian, I think one of the first times I was there in Dubai with you all, Mac, who Brian worked with, used the acronym FAT. He said, look for fat people. I was offended. I'm like, fat people? The guy's speaking from the front. Fat people? Yeah, faithful, available, teachable. Look for those kind of people. Invest in those kind of people. Faithful, available, teachable people. But just pray that this is particularly true of elders. Pray that this kind of heart is particularly true of elders and more men that God would raise up among us to be as elders. Because I think, again, what's so striking is Paul's concern for them. I'm afraid. I fear for you, verse 11. I entreat, like I beg you, verse 12. I am in the anguish of childbirth for you, verse 19. I am perplexed about you, verse 20. He fears, despite all of his labors, that Christ won't be formed in them. That's what he's fearing. Don't miss what he's saying. He uses that image. He's saying, I fear that I may have spiritually miscarried with you. That's what he's saying. And many of you will know that gut-wrenching agony of miscarrying a child. I know in my own marriage to my wife, that was one of the hardest moments in that young marriage was the loss of a child and you know, someone can give you Romans eight twenty eight, and I know it's true. But in that moment, it was hard to digest because you just hurt. And it's just hard. And all we could do was weep. There was a sense of being gutted in that moment. That's how Paul felt about them. He feels he may, and he fears he may have lost them. And that guts him, the sense of anguish. That's how deeply he invested in them, and that's how much their actions grieved him. You know, elders in the room, are you grieved over the sin in the body as Paul was to these Galatian Christians? But what about you? I mean, just members of the church thinking about Paul's own heart. 
you know, as he talks about a spiritual miscarriage, is that the same kind of grief you feel when you observe members of this own body whom you've covenanted with and they decide to pursue an unbiblical divorce or engage in a deeply damaging and unhealthy relationship or give themselves over to addiction or simply stop coming and saying, you know what, I have no interest in any of this anymore and I don't want you to tell me otherwise. Are you grieved like Paul was grieved for them? Fearing spiritually that loss? All of Paul's theological precision, all of that that we've seen was born out of this kind of pastoral concern and compassion for these Christians. Just pray that that would mark us as a church. Theological T's crossed, I's dotted, great. So long as it leads toward this kind of love for one another, because that's what proper theology does. And at the end of the day, our concern, like Paul's, ought to be that not most of us make it, but we all make it mature in Christ, right? Not a soul left behind. And so we proclaim Christ today, pouring ourselves into one another's lives that we might be presented on that day mature and complete in Christ. You can think at Colossians 1, uh, 28, 29, I think, later, if you want to think more about that. False teachers, like those that plagued the Galatians, like some who are going to be standing up at that inauguration, they were gathering people around them. They wanted individuals and they wanted these Galatians to make much of them. But Paul's labors as a true disciple desiring other disciples was not to gather people around him, but that others would have Christ formed in them. His own example might do that, yes, but he wanted finally Christ formed in them. Disciples born of God through the preaching of Christ as they follow the pattern of Christ in others. That's what it means to be a disciple with the kind of heart Paul expressed. Does it define you? Does it describe you? Let's pray. Father, we pray and we're challenged by Paul's own heart. We're challenged by his admonitions. Encouraged though that in the midst of all of it, He wrote to them with warnings, but not despair. He said he feared he may have labored over them in vain. He wasn't confident that he had because he knew that those whom you work in and whom you make yourself known to them, oh, they'll gather around your throne. God, we pray that we would be the kind of body that cares with the same kind of care and compassion Paul had and that we would be seeking to make disciples, to have Christ formed in us together as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.